how are you anyway? If we baptize more people, I'll preach shorter. How's that? It's a fair deal, right? Thank you for not clapping. Shame on the one person who started, okay? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. For the last few weeks, two, three months, really, beginning in the middle of December, God's been taking me on a, on a journey. I've learned a lot. I've questioned a lot. I've had some very faithful friends along the way for the journey that have been patient with me and helped me and taught me. A couple of them are pastors. One who's become a new friend in Houston. His name is Sal Sperna. Another is a man I've never met who wrote a book about discipleship that has greatly helped me. His name is Jim Putman. The concept I'm going to share today with you, I owe the specific concept to them, and it comes straight out of Scripture. Part of my journey is that I have realized my own weakness and limitations as a communicator and one of the leaders in this church. And I'm not talking about teaching and preaching. There's plenty of those limits too. But my specific thing that God has shown me is how poorly sometimes I've communicated, how much I've assumed that we understand why Crosspoint exists and what we should be doing. That's really what this sermon is about. That's what this series is about. This next teaching series, which we're calling Table Talk, is a family conversation where we're going to learn why Jesus has us here. It's the only reason for us to be here. There is no point to living life outside of the will of Jesus Christ. Those baptisms were a public testimony that he is Savior and Lord. And what that means is not only that he's rescued us, but that also he's the boss. And he gets to set the agenda. And that I don't belong on the throne of my own life, that he does. And he gets to tell me what my life is and what it should count for. That's what this series is about. You're probably wondering about this. This table will be up here for the weeks of this series to serve uh, as a visual reminder of this concept that I'm learning. This is a family table. What's the first thing you notice about it? A little bit like a college dorm room, right? Nothing matches. There's different kinds of chairs here. And the visual illustration that this table represents is that church, as we often say, church really is a family. And everyone in this room right now, whether it's your first time at Crosspoint or whether you've been here for 40 years, everyone, spiritually speaking, has a seat at this table. There's different kinds of chairs because they they represent different positions within the family. Everyone at this table has the same value, is loved in the same way, but they're all in different seasons. That first chair, you'll notice, was not designed for a grown-up. This is a chair designed for a baby. It's got big, sturdy arms on one side. It's got a lot of cushion, and it's got four-point restraints here to make sure the little turkey stays put. (laughs) Church families have babies. In fact, when you trust Christ as your Savior, you immediately come into that seat. 
That's not my language, that's his. Jesus said, you must be born again. Everybody moves from not being in the family of God to being in the family at the moment they trust Christ. But they're babies. They're alive and they're incredibly valuable to the family. Nobody in a family causes more joy than a baby being born. You may not go to the 12th birthday party. You will go to the hospital to celebrate with that family. You will load my Instagram up with baby pictures. I, I'm at an age where I've got people sitting in my physical family in big grown-up style chairs, and I remember this chair, and I, I miss it a little bit because it creates a lot of joy. So when you see people coming to faith, when you see new believers immediately being baptized, that's a recognition that they're in this chair right here. Then they get a little bit bigger, and they become young children. That's why we have a high chair here. And the amazing thing about this chair, which I also remember, is just what a mess it can be. I don't know who this belonged to, but it has clearly fed many, many children. If you could see what I see, you would see scars. It looks like it's been through the Clorox ringer, but you can tell this thing has been well used because babies should grow up into young children. Spiritually speaking, it's the same. One of the big differences between these two is a young child is now aware that he's in a family. A baby knows he's alive, and that's about it. You ever watch an infant discover his hands? That's where we all start. We're alive, we're in the family, but you keep growing, you keep following Jesus, and you, you graduate, you get bigger. You realize that you really are spiritually alive. And in fact, there are others who are just coming into the family. And you know more than them. And already you're able to help them. Because the kind of child who can sit in this chair is already old enough to realize that if this chair tips over and baby brother is down here, that is not the way it should be. And he is able to tip him back up. Young children bring great joy to a spiritual family as well. These are the kinds of spiritual children that... John addressed in his first letter, and he called them little children. He also spoke of young men. This is the young adult cheer. This is a very exciting season in life when you're a young adult. Now you're completely aware of the family. You're beginning to discover your own talents and gifts. You know why God made you. You understand your role in the family, and you're looking back across the table knowing that you can help these two a great deal. You don't know entirely what the Father may have for you, but you're beginning to discover gifts. And young adults in our church, spiritually and chronologically, human speaking, humanly speaking, young adults want to make a contribution. They don't want to just sit anymore. They are not content merely to be fed as an infant or a little child was. Now they want to help. They want to know that their life counts and amounts to something. And finally, we come to the final chair at the head of the table. And this is true even in restaurants. Whoever sits at the head of the table does what? This is the parent chair. And the parent, whether you're able to have children or not, people who are capable of being parents, even if they're physically unable to have children, what differentiates them from everybody else at the table is they look across the table and they take responsibility for all of these. 
And the mom or the dad that sits at a table, he'll lay down his life every day in a hard job to feed these two, to watch this one grow up. Now, what is true of a physical table is also true of the spiritual table. And this is the point of the series, and this is what I want you to understand right now. Every single one of you has a seat at the table, and you should all be moving to the head of the table. That's what Jesus called discipleship. A word that may be just as accurate but not as familiar is apprenticeship. When Jesus called believers to walk along with him, what he wanted to do with them is for them to observe his life, to live his life with them and with each other, to move them on to full spiritual maturity. You may have noticed I left out a chair. This chair is at the table, but it doesn't the person who sits in it may not necessarily feel welcome. It comes before spiritual birth. This is the chair of a person who does not know Jesus, who is not yet in the family. And I've been telling you for years, the people who sit spiritually in that chair should matter more to our church than they do. We should be very concerned for the people who spiritually are separated from Christ or outside of the family of God. What is their life this morning? They're not here probably. They think you're a little crazy for having come here. They may not have any understanding of why you sing a song and have any expectation that there is actually a God listening to prayer and to your worship. Everyone in the room is seated in one of these chairs right now. Just as it is in a, spiritual, in a physical family, what we all want to do is move forward in discipleship. Go from the moment we trust Christ and are born into the family, move steadily on to full spiritual maturity. Now, just like in physical life, you should all move forward. In fact, if someone is stuck in one of these chairs in a human family, that's a crisis. I've had several friends whose children were born with genetic abnormalities that made it very, very difficult for them to grow. Their bodies and their development did not represent their chronological age, so those families spent a ton of money and a lot of love and a lot of prayer into helping their child move around the table. So it should be with us. And one of my limits as a pastor is I have not communicated this concept in an understandable way to help everyone find their seat at the table, take the next step with Jesus, and then look back across the table and see who they can help make progress along with them. Now, here's the thing about the spiritual table. You can find yourself at the table, and you might expect that as a pastor I should be seated spiritually in this chair right here, right? I mean, presumably, I'm talking, you're listening, I've got the mic, I'm on top of the stage, I should have this spiritual parenthood thing wired, right? You know what I've discovered? I can move pretty quickly and switch chairs. I can be pretty childish. Sometimes my kids, the ones that I'm trying to raise, my two boys, they'll behave according to their age and I'll throw a fit and I'll act younger than they are. Everybody is at this table somewhere. I want us for the next several weeks to help everyone in this room understand which seat they're in or at least which seat they spend most of the time in so that you can take the steps spiritually in obedience to Jesus to move around the table.
Is that just a good illustration, or is that a biblical concept? Open your Bibles with me. Matthew 28. And let's talk, first of all, about why we're here. Matthew chapter 28, I'm going to ask you to read at various times if you have your outline handy. The end of the Gospel of Matthew is the end of the Gospel of Matthew because it relates Jesus' last words to his disciples before returning to heaven. He had spent three years with 11 men. I said 11 because one of them was a traitor. He was an imposter. He never really was a disciple. He was in the group, but he wasn't following Jesus. He was still on the throne of his own life. And Jesus spent three years of his public ministry with these 11 men. And here's the last thing he told them. And his last words became their first priority. It became the mandate of every disciple ever since. No one can ignore these words and pretend like they're following Jesus because these are our marching orders. This is our mission. Read with me, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. The Bible says, Then Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. What did Jesus tell his disciples to do? He told them to go and make disciples. Now, I'm going to give you a little tiny grammar insight into the language this passage was written in. Please don't turn off your hearts and minds. Because very few people love grammar, and if you do, you might love this, but everybody needs to understand this, okay? In Greek, there's only one command in this passage. There's only one imperative, if you want to use grammar words. And that imperative, can you guess what it is? Make disciples. It's not go. All those other words, the three words that hang off that phrase, make disciples, are in grammar called participles. And participles sound like this. Going, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I told you. One command, three participles depending on it. Let me make that very simple. The one reason Jesus keeps his disciples on earth is to make other disciples. That's it. Why then in English does it say as an imperative, go? Because if you're going to make disciples of all the nations, guess what? You have to go. Going, make disciples. You have to go. That's an imperative too. But the imperative that flows through all of them, the one imperative in grammar that shapes all this other activity is that single instruction to make disciples. For, for three years, 11 men were discipled by Jesus. They were apprenticed to him. They shared their lives. They were continually together and they were continually with him. Then at the very end of his time on earth, it says in Matthew 28, 16, Jesus gathered the 11 where he had told them to meet him. And he said, 
listen, guys. You're going to hit the road. Going, make disciples. And when those disciples are made, here's how you will know them. You, yourselves, you 11, are going to be baptizing them, and you are going to be teaching them. Where's this progression around the table? It's at the end here of verse 20. Teaching them to observe how many different things? Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Teaching them to observe everything I have told you. That's a lifetime of learning. That's a lifetime of apprenticeship. You're never, ever done. And boy, don't I know it. By God's grace, I think I know more about Jesus and love him better now than I did when I was in Bible college when I thought I knew everything. You know who thinks they know everything? These guys right here. Children believe that they have it all figured out. And they say things like, me do it. And they disdain the baby in this chair. They don't want to be here anymore. But the parent knows that they still have a lot of learning to do. Everyone is at this table somewhere. Crosspoint, here's our mission. Our mission is discipleship. That's why we're here. Why do we send missionaries? Because we want to make disciples in places where we cannot physically be present. We are here to help one another move all the way around the table from spiritual death to full maturity in Christ. The people who have no use, no interest, no thought of Jesus who are sitting in this chair outside of the family, they feel unwelcome, but they're not. They are honored guests to come and see Jesus just as one of his early disciples invited a friend. You come and see him. You meet him. You trust him. You hear his good news. You'll be born again, and you'll join the rest of us in this progression of discipleship moving around the table. This is how Paul saw his life. Read Colossians 1.28 with me. You want to hear Paul's life verse? You want to hear what his life boiled down to? Colossians 1.28 tells us. Read it with me. We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. What's Paul's message? Who's Paul talking about? Christ. We proclaim him. We proclaim Jesus. And we are warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom. And here's our sole purpose. He's talking about himself and Timothy. We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that this will result, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now, if you're really going to follow Jesus, you're going to have to decide whether you take the Bible seriously or whether you think it's just rhetoric. Paul's life was given to present everyone he knew to Christ fully mature. Did he make it? At the end of his life, he said sad things like, Demas has forsaken me because he loves the world more. But Paul gave his life to make sure that everyone he came into contact could make their way all around the table. That's what this church amounts to. The mission is discipleship, and Paul would tell us the message is the gospel. 
It's not our clever programming. It's not our instruction. It is the proclamation of Jesus. It's announcing Jesus. It's showing Jesus to people who are seated in this chair and continuing to show Jesus to everyone in the table, at the table that will let them move on to full spiritual maturity. Paul said, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. You notice in the, var- the verse that I quoted there, there's quotes around a part of it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Those quotes are there because the translator wants you to understand this appears to be a common saying in the ancient church. This was part of their creed. This was a formula they had developed to remind themselves of why Jesus had come to earth. Why did he come? To get people out of this chair. But he doesn't want anyone who moves into his family and is born again to stay little children. We love babies in our families, but we would be heartbroken if they were infants 12 years later. Oh yeah, somebody said We love that season. It brings great joy. It's heartbreak when we cannot have babies. And the moment we have them, we start nourishing and caring for them and teaching them for one single purpose. We want them to move around the table. And I'm not there yet, but I've seen my parents' expression and I've seen the look in their eyes now that they have the privilege of being grandparents because they're now enjoying the season of life where their little baby moved all the way over here and God helped me and my wife. Now we have children and they take great joy in it. All their love, all their sacrifice, all their work, all their patience, all their correction resulted in having a kid who somehow didn't kill himself in the process and, and by falling off water towers or doing various stupid things I did when I was in somewhere between these two chairs right here. And now I have children of my own. That is precisely what God wants in his own family. He wants all of you moving on to spiritual maturity. So the mission is discipleship to help everyone move around the table. And the message we're putting before the world and reminding each other of continuously is the gospel of Jesus who came into the world to save sinners and to make full-on, wholehearted disciples. Here's the part that's going to be a challenge for us. So far, that's familiar, yes? You're like, would you get on to something I don't know? I understand the mission is discipleship. I understand the church's message is the gospel. Why are you telling us this? I'm telling you this for the same reason that John Wooden taught his players to put on their socks. You ever heard this? John Wooden, the Wizard of Westwoods, the greatest coach in pretty much everybody's opinion, the greatest coach to ever coach any sport anywhere. He went on a dynastic run that will never be repeated. He coached so many national champions and so many All-Americans that every coach in the world would be glad to have his record. And the first thing he did before every season started was take All-Stars and take national champions, take three-time All-Americans, and subject them to learning how to put on their socks. Coach Wooden had a very specific way he wanted his players to put on their socks. 
He wanted them to roll them on their feet and on their ankles in a specific way for one single reason. He didn't want them to get blisters. And he knew if he put them on sloppily, his players would go into the intense first part of the training and they would get blisters and the best players in the nation wouldn't be able to perform the way God intended them to if their feet hurt. That's all I've done so far. I've told you that our mission is discipleship. Every single person, not just the pastor in this church, every disciple of Jesus is responsible by Jesus to help other people make spiritual progress around the table. And the way we do that is the gospel. The part that will be challenging for our church, and my final thought for you, is the method. How did Jesus do this? Well, the mission is discipleship. The message is the gospel. The method is a small group. Small groups have a bad reputation sometimes in churches, including ours. Small groups are generally seen as kind of an add-on if you want to, if you have time. There's something maybe for people who are genuinely messed up in some way. Or super advanced Christians who just have the extra time. And that's been part of my limitation. That's been part of my failure. Because I've believed the mission of Jesus and the message of Jesus, but I haven't paid sufficient attention to Jesus' method, I've failed you as a spiritual brother, as someone at the table, in showing you and explaining to you how much it mattered to Jesus and how dead set determined he was not only to give us a mission and to give us a message, but also to show us the method that he used to grow disciples. And what was it? He called 11 men to himself and he poured his life in them. Listen, if your, if your end goal was to reach the entire world, do you think you would have just given yourself to 11? Doesn't that seem kind of small? Wouldn't it have made more sense to do big showy things and do mass trainings where you could reach everybody at once? Not according to Jesus. Look at Mark chapter 3, verse 14 on your outline. I want to show you the pivotal moment in his ministry where he laid out the method that he was going to use to teach disciples. Mark chapter 3, verse 14. Speaking of Jesus, it says, He also appointed twelve. He also named them apostles. And that Greek word means sent ones. These are the ones who are going to eventually go. These are the ones who are going to make disciples. These 11, because one of them, remember, is a traitor. These are the 11 that three years later are going to meet him on top of that hill and hear his instructions, hear the mission. He also, it says, appointed 12. He also named them apostles to be with him. And what? There are two reasons that Jesus called 11 people to himself. There are two reasons he started his small group. What are they? To do what? To be with him and send them out to preach. The order matters. Jesus wanted for 11, uh, for 11 men to spend the next three years with him and with one another. And that's the gospel story. 
You can see these guys butting heads. How immature could his disciples be? At the Last Supper, he announced he was about to die, and they started fighting about who was going to be bigger in the kingdom. This chair right here. Daddy's going away. Bring me a toy. Bigger than his. You see him patiently shepherd them and teach them and bear with them. You see them argue with each other. But you see them spending time with him and with one another for three years. And when they finally got their mission and they were clear on their message 2,000 years later, here you're sitting in Huntington Beach because his method works. And we ignore it, I ignore it, to my peril and to my failure and to my sin. Here's why that's tough for a church. We've created a church culture in our church and across America where pastors are content to create Sunday morning experiences that draw people in to enjoy worship music, to sing to God, to hear a Bible lesson, and then go out and live their lives pretty much alone for the rest of the week until they get to do it all again on Sunday. And it doesn't work. You heard it in Stacy Percy's testimony. How did she feel the love of God? Through you. Why is that? Because that's the way God designed it. Here's my point. Both the message and the method of Jesus are sacred. See, our church, for all the time I've known it, beginning when I was a freshman in college, we're really clear on the message. We haven't paid much attention to the method. I was told as a young pastor, if people would come to Sunday morning worship and to Sunday school, they would grow to full maturity. You know what I'm convinced about all these years later? It ain't necessarily so. Here's where we are in our church life. The people who are connecting and with Jesus and with one another and are growing to maturity, it's happening by the grace of God, but it's happening almost by accident. If you're fortunate enough to come to this church and meet a friendly person who then takes a spiritual parent responsibility towards you and helps you move around the table, good for you. You know what is all too common? People who like the music, they either like or endure the preaching and it's good enough, but they come for weeks and months, they don't make a single friend. You know what happens? They leave. Why is that? Because it's not the way Jesus designed the Christian life to be lived. In Galatians, it says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Our church has grown to the size where no one person can know all the burdens, much less address them. You need a small circle of friends for that. We need not only the message, we also need the method. And if this were the way Jesus set it up to work, if this is what he taught the disciples, you would expect it to show up in the New Testament after Jesus left. And guess what? It does. Look at Acts 2, 46. Read that with me. Acts 2, verse 46. The Bible says, Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple complex and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with a joyful and humble attitude, praising God and having favor with all the people. And every day the Lord added to them those who were being saved. It says every day they. Do you know who they are? 
Thousands of people. Thousands of people were saved. And they had favor in their community. And every day people were moving from this chair into the chair of the spiritual baby who's just in the family. And the entire family is celebrating and doing all they can to help that baby grow. Why did that happen? Because every day they were devoting themselves to meeting together in the temple complex and broke bread. What's it say? Now, did the thousands move from one giant house to the other? No. They became friends. They became fellow disciples. They followed Jesus together. They bore each other's burdens. They broke bread together. They celebrated communion together. They grew in faith. They settled family disagreements and arguments. They served and loved and the world was turned upside down by the message of Jesus. All because the early Christians were also capable of not only loving the message, but also loving and embracing the method. So what's this mean for you? Every single person in this room is in one of these chairs right now. You can move around and you can move backward. It's easier to move backward than it is to move forward. You ever notice that? Pretty hard for me sometimes to act like a grown-up, but boy, it's pretty easy to act like a child. But every person in this room is here somewhere, and if you're not absolutely sure that you're in the family of God, if you are wondering whether you're sitting in this, ta- in this chair right here, you are welcome and we love you. And we want you to hear what matters most, that Jesus appeared to the world to save you from your sin. And that Jesus was right when he said that you must be born again. And our deepest desire is for you to be born into the family of God. And what the rest of us should dedicate ourselves to do as long as God has us here in this church family is to look up the table and figure out what's my next step and in obedience to Jesus, move on to the next season. And then look back across the table and see who is behind you that you can help take his next step with Jesus. We don't even have the structure for this yet. I'm meeting with a small group and have been for weeks. Our vision, our plan, and our dream is to naturally multiply ourselves into more and more groups so that not one person who calls Crosspoint home can come to this church and not have friends here. Let me tell you how much this matters to me. How much I'm convinced that this is not only a cool new church trend, but this is the very method of Jesus. I don't want to do church any other way. The easiest thing for me in the world, what I enjoy most is what I'm doing right now. The preaching, easy. Well, not easy, but very, very enjoyable. But what would a family be like if one of the spiritual parents called the family together once a week and gave them a meal? And said, okay, kids. Go do your stuff. See you next Sunday. I'll bring the pizza. Be a malnourished, disorganized, immature family. We don't even have the structure for this, but we're committed to it. I don't know even, I can't even invite you specifically and practically to a next step, but I can welcome you to the table. Over the next several weeks, I'm going to try to teach about each one of these chairs and help you find yourself in it so that you can move over and take your next step with the Lord and then look back and help somebody else do the same thing.
The mission is discipleship. Our message is the gospel. And our method will be the small group. Will you pray with me right now, please? Lord, I've talked to people this morning from your word, doing my best, Lord, to share with them what you've taught me and what I've seen in your word of how you crafted disciples. Your method, Lord, is as sacred and good and reliable as your message. Forgive me for not knowing it, understanding it earlier. Help us now, Lord, to find our place at the table and take, Lord, the next steps with you. And listen, if there's somebody in this room who hasn't trusted Christ as Savior, I'm asking you specifically now to do so. If you wonder whether you are in the family at all, you're probably not. But Jesus came to call you away from yourself and away from sin to trust him as Savior and Lord. And he will give you new life and welcome you into God's family and he'll give you the spiritual capacity to grow. And if you'll follow him along with the rest of us, you'll be amazed in just a few weeks and months how much your life changes, what a difference he makes when he really is both Savior and Lord. My invitation to you, if you haven't trusted Christ, is that you would do so this morning. That you'd take that connection card and fill the back of it out and let us know that you have questions or that you're taking a step of faith and asking Jesus to save and forgive you. And for the rest of you, my spiritual family seated all around this big table, my invitation to you in closing is that you would ask Jesus to show you where you're seated and ask him to help you move over into your next step in maturity. Lord, as we close our service, speak now, Lord, to hearts. Show those, Lord, who are outside your family how much you love them and help them right now take a step of faith towards you and ask you to forgive them and save them from their sin. Help all the others, Lord, all those who already believe, help all of us, beginning with me, take our next step with you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us on this edition of Cross Points. If you have any questions about what you just heard, please call our church office at 714-848-5511. If you're nearby next Sunday, we have two services. The first is our traditional hymn-driven service at 9 a.m., and then we have our contemporary service at 10.30 a.m. with our worship band. Both services feature the same Bible teaching. Visitors are always welcome at Crosspoint, and we hope you'll choose to worship with us when you're near the Huntington Beach community.